Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's second installment of the Innovation Engine Podcast with Rowan Gibson, we'll be looking at the four lenses of innovation. We'll talk about how companies like Dell and Rolls-Royce found huge success as a result of challenging orthodoxies, how the concept of seeing the future in the present applies to innovating successfully, and the three distinct phases in the act of creation. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Rowan Gibson, a world-renowned innovation expert who has served as a keynote speaker on the subject of innovation in 60 countries around the world. Rowan is the internationally best-selling author of the just-published book, The Four Lenses of Innovation, a power tool for creative thinking. He has previously written two major books on corporate innovation and business strategy, Innovation to the Core and Rethinking the Future, both of which are published today in over 20 languages. Rowan is also the co-founder of InnovationExcellence.com, the most popular innovation website in the world, which is built on an international group of over 22,000 members from 175 countries. Thanks for joining us again this week, Rowan. <laughs> Thanks, Well, You can't get rid of me. <laughs> no, nor would we want to. So we're back talking about The Four Lenses of Innovation, uh, Rowan's book, which was just published last Monday. Uh, and we're just going to pick things up where we left off. So Rowan, if you can, let's let, let's look at a few examples of companies that have challenged orthodoxies and gone on to great success as a result. So challenging orthodoxies is the first of the four lenses. And there's yep. a company you mentioned in the book that doesn't get as much press as their you know, counterparts over at Apple, Dell. Uh, today, they employ more than 100,000 people worldwide and generate $57 billion in annual revenue. What was the orthodoxy that Michael Dell challenged when he first started his company? Yeah, well, there was Michael Dell sitting there in his dorm room. You know, he was a student at the University of Texas, and he kind of sat there and asked himself, why, why are personal computers so expensive? You know, he's a student, so he can't really afford expensive computers, and, and, and his fellow students couldn't afford them either. But, but he, he went out and he looked at the price of the average PC, and he found that it was five times the price of the parts, you know, the components that went into it. So he wondered if he could start building cheaper computers by – by buying those individual components and then assembling the PCs and, and then selling them to, to, to the students around him. And, and then he wondered if he could start selling computers to people and businesses outside of the university. So in many ways, Michael Dell was challenging uh, industry orthodoxies, not just in terms of the price of a computer, but also in terms of the distribution. Because he asked himself, why, why does a computer manufacturer need a network of dealers to sell their products? Why can't you sell computers over the phone directly to consumers? Again, this, this you know, okay, it wasn't just about price, but it also entailed a price benefit because, of course, it meant that, that Dell could um, cut out the dealer's overheads and the margin and so on. So he could, he could actually offer the, the computers for a lower price. But he also challenged other orthodoxies. Like, um, you know, why can't computers be built to order um, so, you know, consumers can have the product configured to their own specifications? And why do computer companies manage their own inventory when their suppliers can do it for them? So when we, when we unpack this case, 
And we begin to see the thinking processes that led Michael Dell to his big idea. Um, you know, that's, I think, when the lenses really start coming to life, because we see that it was by asking these contrarian questions that he was able to spot an opportunity that the whole computer industry had missed. So I think that's a very good example of this first lens of innovation, challenging orthodoxies. Okay, and another one that you mentioned, another company that you mentioned in the book uh, that challenged orthodoxies successfully is Rolls-Royce. So I'm sure many listeners know them as a maker of high-end automobiles, but they also have a jet engine business. Can you talk about the new service line that they introduced and how it was, and how it was a result of challenging orthodoxies? Yeah, this was back in the mid-90s. So Rolls-Royce used to think that their aerospace business was basically all about designing and building and selling engines for airplanes. That was it. So they never really gave much consideration to um, service and maintenance. They, they, they thought of these things as um, after-sales issues. So they were essentially an afterthought. But then they sat down and they began to question that, that business model. And the idea was, what if we offered, you know, in addition to the, the engines, what if we offered long-term service contracts for our jet engine customers um, that covered engine health monitoring and maintenance and so on? And, you know, today, this business, um, uh, the service business, actually accounts for over 50 percent. It's around 55 percent of, of Rolls-Royce's revenues. So in other words, it's more valuable than the sale of the engines. And I think that's another great example that illustrates what can happen when you start challenging your traditional assumptions about, about the business you're in. Okay, great. So let's talk about the, the concept of seeing the future in the present, which is something you write about in the book. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this is the second lens of innovation. Um, so if you if you remember in the first part, uh, you know, first part of the podcast, we talked about the Renaissance and what some of those people back then had done. Well, one of those those perspectives we identified was harnessing trends. Mm -hmm. And that is something that innovators tend to do really well. You know, they somehow um, intuitively understand change. They they pay close attention to change. They have a knack for spotting trends that could profoundly impact the future of an industry or, or a trend that they could use themselves to sort of drive industry revolution. And, and these changes, these trends, of course, are already out there. It's not like they're hidden from view. But, you, but if you want to find them, you have to be looking. You have to be sensitive to these things. You have to make sure that they're on your radar screen. So it's really about looking intently at what's happening right now in the present and then imagining where these developments might lead in the future. And then, of course, doing something about them. And uh, sometimes when a new development starts out, it's pretty small. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a little thing that someone's working on. But innovators can look at a ripple on the ocean and they recognize it as a potential tsunami in the future. And more importantly, they figure out how they can ride that wave by, by taking advantage of the trend at just the right time usually at a time when others haven't even noticed what's going on or they've chosen to ignore what's going on. And when that tsunami finally hits an industry, the innovators are on top of it. You know, they're like they're on the surfboards riding the wave um, rather than being buried by it. And when I say buried by it, if you think about some of these industry tsunamis in the last couple of decades, they've really been devastated. So the tsunami for Kodak, of course, was digital photography. 
ironically, a technology that they'd invented themselves, but they failed to harness that and to monetize it in ways that resonated with customers. The tsunami for the music industry was digital distribution, in particular with um, Apple's iTunes music store and the iPod. The tsunami for Nokia and BlackBerry was the touchscreen iPhone because it had such instant consumer appeal, but also unlimited ways to add value and functionality through the App Store. Of course, the tsunami for the iPhone today is, is, is Android, which is already running on over 80% of the, of the world's uh, mobile devices. Um, another tsunami was, was the thing that hit Blockbuster, which was video streaming. Um, and so we got digital-only services like Netflix and HBO and Amazon Instant that replaced Main Street movie rental stores like overnight. And now, of course, we've got Uber that's wrecking the traditional taxi industry. We've got stuff like Airbnb in the hospitality industry. So it's very much about figuring out what these waves are going to be. And I remember that Steve Jobs actually said something about this on one occasion. He said, you can see these waves way before they happen. And you just have to choose wisely which ones you're going to surf. So I like to ask companies a very pointed question. Which wave are you riding? You know, it could be a technology wave. It could be a lifestyle wave. It could be a demographic wave. It could be something else that has revolutionary potential. But what are the, what are the trends or the discontinuities that are going to open up amazing new opportunities for creating new customer value and perhaps even disrupting your industry? Yeah, and it, it sounds like of all the uh, tidal waves that you mentioned, digital seemed to be the the one theme that cut across a number of them. Yeah. Uh, so a, a company that you talk about in the book is one that excels at seeing the future is Nike. What have they figured out about how humans interact with technology in this era, and what has Nike done to capitalize on it? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question if you think about it, what you said there. You know, here's a, here's a company that makes sports, sh sports shoes and apparel, and you're saying um, they figured out how humans interact with technology in this era. You know, so that, that's really, if you think about it, something that lays, you know, outside of their traditional core business. But, but Nike realized years ago that great shoes, great apparel, you know, and a powerful brand image are not enough to keep you at the top of the game if you pardon the pun. You know, they, they, they looked out there and they saw this huge wave called digital and social media, and they knew they had to catch that wave or, or be buried by it. So back in, I think it was 2010, they created Nike Digital Sport, which was the unit that launched Nike Plus. The Nike Plus, it's a whole ecosystem actually of digital products and experiences. So remember they linked up with the iPod and then they came up with the Nike Plus sport watch and then the fuel band and all the training apps and they've got the nike plus online community and so on so now of course fitness wearables are all the rage and the industry is gearing up for i think it's five-fold growth in the next three years so nike was right on the money they didn't they didn't get caught out like some of the other sports shoe and apparel brands they really really knew that the future was going to be about digital and they did something about it so on the topic of technology, you write about technology a good bit in the book, and it's something that we talk about often on the podcast here. Are there any technologies or one in particular that you're very bullish on? 
Wow, you know, there's so much exciting stuff going on right now, isn't there? I mean, like things like robotics and uh, 3D printing and nanotech and now we've got self-driving cars and trucks and there's artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things. And so I'm pretty bullish on all these things, really. Right. And of course, uh, you know, what's really exciting to me is a lot of this stuff is going to come together and compound. So, you know, the prospects are pretty mind-blowing. I remember, I think it was last year, Mary Meeker, you know, the internet analyst? Yeah, she from, said, uh, I think she's at Kleiner Perkins now. There you go. You see, she said the future will be about um, wearables, drivables, flyables, and scannables. You know, I, I think that's quite an accurate way of, 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 of putting it. But, but, but uh, one thing I will say is I, I think we're on the verge of some really big stuff, if you know what I mean, and I really hope so. Mm -hmm. um, one of my sons recently said to me, Dad, we used to get things like the printing press, and now we get selfie sticks. <laughs> you know, so, you know, even the kids recognize that we kind of need to make a few giant leaps again, you know, and not just come up with this trivial stuff. I think too much innovation brain power has been focused in recent years on things that are, you know, they're likely to give you a pretty fast return on investment but they're pretty trivial. So, I mean, things like, you know, another mobile app, another digital game, another piece of software. And of course, we love these things and we need them. But but if it were up to me, I'd like to maybe siphon away some of the focus from this kind of software technology and push it toward things that could really make a big difference to the world. Yeah. Um, let me tell you a story. I just came back from Israel um, where you'll know, I mean, that's a real hotbed of, of innovation, you know, the startup nation. And there's a a lot of technology innovation going on there. Um, actually, I was I was there to speak at a technology conference, and 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 even to pick up an award. I'll, I'll say, which I'm very proud of. It's called the the Global Leader of Innovation Award 2015. Nice. Yeah. So, but, yeah, but but what makes me even more proud, Will, is the fact that this award wasn't only given to me. It was given to a couple of my innovation heroes uh, who were there. One is Dean Kamen who's best known as the um, inventor of the Segway. And the other is Ray Kurzweil, who's just a brilliant innovator and futurist. And those guys also talked about this whole topic of doing big things for humankind. So Dean um, has been working on a thing called Slingshot. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's, it's a revolutionary water purification device that can produce absolutely 100% pure drinking water from almost any source. So think about what this could mean for like the 900 million people worldwide who don't have access to drinking water or the three and a half million people who die annually because of diseases that result from drinking, you know, unsanitary water. So that's Dean. And then there's Ray. Ray, Ray Kurzweil is working on nothing less than immortality. It's true. His, um, his focus is on life extension technologies. So, you know, what would you rather have, a new smartphone app or a technology that's going to reverse the effects of disease and aging and so on? So that's what I, I mean by really big stuff. Ray is the director of, uh, of engineering at Google now. And you know that Google's into all this kind of way out technology that then suddenly doesn't look all that way out anymore. You know, who would have thought that we'd have autonomous vehicles, for example. That all happened so quickly. And then Google, we know, is working on dramatically extending human life and reversing the aging process. So that's why I respect Google so much and I respect guys like Dean and, and Ray Kurzweil so much because 
I don't know, they, they just, they have their focus on bigger stuff. And Google, you know, they're taking their current profits and they're reinvesting those profits into some really major endeavors that could radically change the world. So, you know, that's my kind of attitude toward, toward technology right now. Yeah, definitely. I we, we had a guest on recently who talked about self-driving cars and uh, driverless transportation. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the deepest thinker in the world, but I do enjoy thinking about things that, that are the way they are now and how in 20 years they'll be hard for people to comprehend why they were that way or how they were that way or how they came to be that way. And I do think that that is one of the things that will fundamentally change in our lifetime, certainly. Um, yeah. and, and gosh, I guess if, if Ray has his way, then maybe our lifetimes will never end, which is mind blowing. Uh, and it's, and Absolutely. it's so, so what are we going to experience in our lifetimes? That, that puts a whole different dimension on that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, maybe in the phrase in our lifetime will be a thing of the past. There you go. Who knows? Uh, uh okay. So, so let me get back to the book, Rowan, and, and ask you about the three R's. There's something you write about. Um, that innovative companies tend to manage well. What are the three R's that you write about in the book? Yeah, this is the third lens of innovation, which is called leveraging resources in new ways. So it's about taking skills or core competencies along with um, you know, strategic assets and saying, how could we repurpose, redeploy, or recombine these things in order to open up new growth opportunities. So, so, the, so there are the three R's, right? Repurpose, redeploy, and recombine. And this has really been central to the way humans innovate for thousands of years. You know, remember, if I go back to that story of Gutenberg and the printing press that we talked about earlier in the, in the first podcast, it was a great example of recombination because Gutenberg leveraged his skills in metalworking to make those, those metal letters, the, the, the movable type, he took the idea of the printing press from, you know, the wooden wine presses that were all around him in, the, in that area. Um, but he also combined it with other things like um, the availability of paper. I mean, one of his business partners actually owned a paper mill. So that solved the problem of, you know, we got paper for the, for the press. And then he picked up the idea for printer's ink from the oil paint that had been created by Jan van Eyck, the, the Dutch painter, a few years earlier um, in Holland. So... Gutenberg really was great at connecting all this stuff. And that's the principle that we need to learn here. How do we connect um, and redeploy and repurpose things um, to create new opportunities for um, innovation? So I think, again, Google is a good example of this in modern times because they started out with just a search engine, right? But if you look at Google today, how would you define Google? How would you define the company? I mean, it's not just search, which, by the way, they've also stretched into all kinds of new search opportunities like images and books and movies and things, but it's also productivity tools like Gmail and Calendar and Contacts. It's the advertising tools they use. It's cloud computing. It's uh, the Chrome web browser and the Chrome operating system. And then we've got Android for mobile devices and also for wearables. And then they've got Google TV. They've got the Google Play Store and all that stuff. You know, so I mean, I could go on and on. They've got Nexus smartphones. They've got Chromebook laptops. They got, um, well, Google Glass, which hasn't been a great success, but I, I still consider that to be revolutionary. And then they got things like Nest Labs, which they bought, you know, the, the, the market for smart home, auto, autom what do you call it? home automation appliances, um, Waze, which is about traffic and navigation. So, 
I mean, Google has just stretched into so many opportunities right through to all that flaky stuff that we just mentioned, like self-driving cars or airborne wind turbines and artificial intelligence and robotics and, you know, those, what are those things? High altitude balloons for broadcasting uh, internet service to remote areas of the world. Yeah. And then, you know, we talked about Ray Kurzweil and all this, this research into the biological causes of aging and, and disease. So in other words, rather than developing a narrow self image that pigeonholes the firm in a particular category, Google's been able to stretch the way it defines its business based on its collection of, of competencies and assets. And I like the way Larry Page put it in an interview last year. He said, he said, I always thought it was kind of stupid if you have this big company and you can only do like five things. You know, so, so that's the principle here. And we see this principle with other innovative firms like Disney or Amazon or Richard Branson's Virgin Group, you know, which started as a record store, just one store in London. And it transformed itself into this global conglomerate with 400 different companies in all kinds of different industries like the airline and the mobile phone business and so on. So in other words, you've got to say, how do we extend the boundaries of our business? You don't want to get locked into a particular way of looking at your company. Instead, you've got to try to imagine ways to stretch beyond your current business into new spaces, new domains, either adjacencies or you know things that are way outside of your core business. And that's why I think you need this third lens of innovation. You've got to develop what I call an elastic view of your company. So rather than defining it in terms of what it currently is or what it currently does, you've got to try to think of your company in terms of what it knows, you know, its, its unique set of skills or competencies, and what it owns, which is its, its assets. And you've also got to look outside your firm and search for opportunities to combine your own resources or your company's resources with the competencies and assets of other companies to produce these new, you know, recombinant solutions for customers. Okay, great. So let me, let me ask you about uh, something you talk about in the book, which is a pretty provocative question and one that there's a lot of kind of innovation stuff of legend around, which is, do customers really know what they want? So Henry Ford is, you know, rumored to have said, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah, do you that, think that's actually an apocryphal uh, uh, quotation? I don't think he ever said it. I've, I've researched that back and found there's no no nowhere that, that Ford actually said that. But, but I like the principle, right. and I think I think Steve Jobs really nailed it. Do you remember when Steve Jobs said, "People don't don't know what they want until you show it to them," mm-hmm. and that that's often true. I mean, nobody was asking for the iPod, no one was asking for the iPhone, nobody was asking for the Apple Store. But when Steve Jobs showed us these amazing things, you know, we realized that we definitely wanted them. We needed them. Uh, no one was crying out for Skype or, or Facebook or Twitter. But obviously, we must have needed these things because today we can't live without them. You know, did you know you needed Uber? I mean, you might have been frustrated with traditional taxi services and frankly, who wasn't? But you probably couldn't have envisaged a radical alternative like Uber. Did you know you needed a smart home thermostat from Nest? that learns your behaviors. Nope. Uh, but you were probably frustrated with trying to control your current thermostat because it's so damn complicated. I used to have to ask the neighbor to come in every time I, I needed to you know, adjust the, uh, the, the thermostat. Did you know that you needed um, a cool set of DJ headphones you know, by Dr. Dre to, to listen to your iPod? Uh, again, no, but, but if you think back, 
the sound quality of those little earbuds that we've been using for over a decade was never really that great. So, so all these innovations were designed to address needs that most of us were not even aware of, which is why we weren't articulating them. Or they gave us solutions that we couldn't have imagined because we didn't even know they were possible. So this is the whole focus of the fourth lens of innovation. It's about uncovering and addressing those deep, unmet, and perhaps unvoiced customer needs. And there's no harm in asking customers about their needs. There's obviously a place for focus groups and so on. But this lens goes a lot deeper than that. You know, if you look at P&G today, for example, they don't just test new product ideas with a focus group. They really integrate customers into the whole product development process. I mean, they, they go out and they actually live with consumers in their homes. They do a lot of that ethnographic research with video. You know, they film the way people perform everyday household tasks or how they use hygiene products or beauty products. And, and then they work with consumers on brainstorming new solutions and prototyping them and developing them and commercializing them. So, so the, the customer is fully integrated into P&G's whole product launch um, model. And, um, you know, I think the, these are very practical examples but, but really, it's about shifting our perspective. You know, it's about looking, looking, well, using this lens to kind of view things through the customer's eyes. It's developing empathy. It's understanding what it's like to be the customer. I remember this great ad from IBM that they ran a few years back. The headline was this, stop selling what you have, start selling what they need. You know, I really love that because instead of coming up with a product you think is great and then going out and marketing it, which, by the way, is how P&G used to do things in the old days. It's about trying to discover some deep unmet need that's out there that you can address and then designing a solution from the customer back. And sometimes that means figuring out what's wrong with your product or what's wrong with your service from the customer's perspective and then putting it right. That's why we got things like um, diet soda and low-fat chips and low-fat ice cream and sugar-free chocolate and alcohol-free beer and light beer. Basically, what those manufacturers, those innovators in, were doing in those cases was trying to take the negative out of the equation. Yeah, and, and so once you understand those needs, it gets to be time to create. And you talk in the book about the three distinct phases and the act of creation. So what are those three phases? Well, it turns out that scientists and psychologists and practitioners have been studying how creativity works for over 100 years. So I think it's pretty safe to say that we know that there is a process involved. You know, it's not just chaos. There's a process. And there are definitely some phases that we usually go through on this process on the road to a breakthrough. So some people define three distinct phases. Others have four or five phases. Depends how thoroughly you want to unpack it. I mean, I actually believe that there are often eight steps involved in building a breakthrough, and I have that in the book somewhere. But let's come back to these three phases that you mentioned, which are number one, saturation, which is, you know, really focusing down on solving some situation or problem. And then number two, incubation, where you're letting your unconscious mind take over and sort of ruminating on the whole issue. And then finally, number three, illumination, when the answer or the new idea suddenly becomes apparent. You know, Eureka, you know, I've found it. So that's what we typically refer to as the Eureka moment or the, the aha moment. Um, but I've never really been satisfied with this model because I believe it's vastly 
oversimplified. And as I said at the beginning, if we're really going to solve the mystery of where big ideas come from, we have to truly understand the thinking processes that lead people to these eureka moments. So in the book, what I try to do is unpack the creative thinking process a little more thoroughly. And what we find is that, that ideas don't just come to us out of the blue in a sudden flash of inspiration. We actually build them in our minds. Now, we might not be consciously aware of this building process that's going on, but, but that's in fact what's happening in our heads. An idea is a new collection of thoughts. It's a new pattern in the mind, if we want to come back to the discussion we had in the, in the earlier podcast. So at, at its very essence, creative thinking is about making these new combinations and connections between previously existing thoughts and ideas and domains. So it's about building these new patterns. And the most um, profound conclusion for me is that a big idea is always preceded by a new insight, you know, a new understanding that shifts our perspective in some way. And that really brings us back to the lenses because the four lenses give us a tool for developing these new perspectives and discovering these new insights, which then go on to become the stepping stones to big ideas. So I actually think the last part of the book, which deals with this whole issue of insights and their role in the creative thinking process, I think it's the most profound for me. Because instead of running off and just trying to come up with ideas, which is what we usually do, what we should be doing actually is, is looking first for these new insights, looking for the raw material out of which those big ideas will be built. And the great news is that we, we really can do that now systematically. That's what the four lenses of innovation allow us to do either as individuals or as teams or as organizations. That's why I think of this as a, a power tool for creative thinking. Okay, great. The, the book is called The Four Lenses of Innovation, A Power Tool for Creative Thinking. Rowan, I, I want to close by asking you uh, one thing. There is, I, I know you said that we all have the creative capacity within us, but there was one person that you cited in the book who I was just blown away by, by his creative capacity, and it was Da Vinci. The list of yeah. things that he came up with for his day were just mind-boggling to me. So if you, if you know them off the top of your head, can, can you just list a few of the, of the inventions that, that da Vinci came up with in the course of his lifetime? Yeah, he was, he was an amazing guy. He just seemed to be so curious about everything. You know, he made these thousands of pages of notes on, on, on all kinds of stuff. You know, and there was one occasion where he actually – he wanted to find out if um, – if he were to make the wings of a fly heavier, would that change the tone, the buzzing noise of a fly? I mean, this is the kind of guy Leonardo da Vinci was, yeah? And so he put honey on the wings and found that it kind of lowered the, the, the tone of, of the buzzing noise. So this was the sort of, the sort of stuff that went on his head. But, but you know, he, was, he, he invented things like, you know, the, the, um, the helicopter, you know, or, or came, up, came up with a way for people to walk on water wearing these strange uh, sort of blocks. Um, you know, there was just all these, all the, you know, all sorts of kind of stuff that, all the, the parachute. You know, who would, ever, who would ever figure out that you'd need a parachute before we even learn how to fly? So, and there were other things as well, like the armored tank, um, a giant crossbow, uh, a triple-barreled cannon. And, and, and all sorts of stuff, hydraulic pumps and flywheels and 
ball bearings and, you know, whatever. I mean, just the, the list goes on and on and on. And unfortunately, of course, in those days, he couldn't actually make a lot of that stuff happen. So it took several hundred years before people could, could, could really develop and, and make those things uh, real. But, but the fact is that those ideas came out of the head of this guy back there right in the middle of the, of the Renaissance. Yeah, definitely. Well, Rowan, thanks again for joining us. Uh, some, some great tips on the four lenses of innovation and, and how they can be applied to driving corporate and personal innovation. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Will. Been great to be with you. Absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about Rowan Gibson, you can visit his website at www.rowangibson.com. You can join his close to 4,000 followers on Twitter at at Rowan Gibson, and you can buy his latest book, The Four Lenses of Innovation, on Amazon.com and in bookstores around the world. Thanks again to Rowan Gibson for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have Nathan Furr on the podcast to talk about the innovator's method. We'll talk about how lean startup principles and design thinking can help accelerate the innovation process, the four-step process that makes up the innovator's method, and the merits of using minimum awesome products to test out concepts and validate ideas. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com.